men return from the canoe trip unscathed. Maybe not in their dignity, but they're here. Right. That's great. <laughs> Glad you guys are back safe. All right, if you guys would join me in opening up God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are continuing in our series, Preserve the Truth. Uh, Pastor Jeff has already led us through the uh, first chapter of 1 Timothy here. And we have seen God's mandate through Paul to Timothy to preserve the truth. Preserve the truth in regards to doctrine with all the distortions that were going on in the first century church. To preserve the truth in regards to their faithful love and the gospel itself, keeping it pure. And so now here in chapter 2, Paul pivots his attention to the church. From here on, we see God's call to what the church is to be like, how the church is to function, what kind of flavor are they to have. And, and I'm aware on the onset of this, this passage, like many others in the Bible, is one that can either engage you or enrage you. It can cause you to want to be fruitful or to be frustrated. But, but in this passage, there is an urgency to our mission and an urgency assigned to the implementation of that mission that God wants us to see. And it is more important than ever. Just this week, Milton Ulmer uh, shot over an article to me that had a Gallup poll in it. And in this poll, it said that only 47% of Americans uh, claim to have a home place of worship, which is down 50% since 2018 and a whopping 70% since 1999. And so the call to preserve the truth is more urgent than ever. And so we preserve the truth, not just so we're able to guard against distortions and false doctrines, but we're to preserve the truth so that we might be ever grounded into Christ, that we might not fall away, and we might be committed to his work and mission here. The title today is simply, Be the Church, Citizens of Heaven and Our Exilic Commission. So would you join me in, in looking at God's word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and listen, when we read it or when we hear it, this is God's word. We want to hear what he has to say about this issue. So this is what the word of God says. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Lord, and as we just read, your truth can be both glorious and weighty. But Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to invade us, that we might see, Lord, that we might own, and that we might glorify you by being who you've called us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the German Jews in Nazi-occupied Germany, Berlin specifically, were very accustomed to the oppression of the new regime. Since 1933, the Nazis took power with their well-known chancellor, Adolf Hitler, 
and they have been experiencing repressive policies since 1933. But for the majority of the time, it has not been oppressive in that it has not been nonviolent. But all that changed in November of 1938, when the Nazis enacted Kristallnacht, which literally means crystal night. You might be more aware of it called the Night of Broken Glass. There was a task force sent out to attack Jewish persons and property. They killed almost 100 Jews in Berlin. They captured tens of thousands and sent them off to what we will know as the concentration camps and burned down businesses and their synagogues, except for one. One shul, which is Yiddish for a synagogue that was attached to a youth boys' school, they convinced them not to burn it down because they said, no, this isn't for religious purposes, but for educational only. And so for the meantime, the SS troops allowed it to remain. So after Kristallnacht was over, the illuminaries in Berlin made their way to the synagogue. As they passed ranks of SS troops, they were jeered at and beaten until they entered the synagogue. And one SS commander was astonished to see that as the Jews entered the synagogue, they began to pray. They prayed for the welfare of the state. How can that be? How can a people who would be, as we know, annihilated by this regime come and pray for the welfare of the state? That is so countercultural. That is odd. That is crazy. But that is exactly what Paul addresses here in this text. He is calling us to pray. And so we see first that our charge as believers, is to be a praying church. We see this in in verse 1 through 3. God is calling us to pray. And of all the things that he could tell us to do of primacy, of first importance, Paul says, first of all, pray. And there's an urgency in here. He is trying to persuade us to be a church that prays. And he lists prayers in general. He lists supplications where we are praying that God would supply a need or intercessions where we are pleading on the behalf of another and giving a thanks to God and for his people. And it is not to highlight these individually, but just to say, church, you are to encompass all forms of prayer for all people. That is how you're supposed to be. That is how you're supposed to live, to be this type of church. And listen, Derek basically preached the message for me. So I'm just going to reiterate. <laughs> I appreciate your faithfulness. He, he did. Listen, church, we are to be a church of prayers, not prosecutors. And in the culture that we live in today, especially the evangelical culture, we have a lot of pointed fingers, a lot of animosity and hatred and not praying for people's souls. This is a, a travesty. Tony Ranke, in his book, Competing Spectacles, writes, my experience is what I agreed to attend to. And why is that important? If you're an individual that is consumed with listening to NPR or watching Fox News or is all up in that social media your experience is going to be what you're attending to. And so you're going to be inundated with a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions. And your experience is going to be informed by that. But God's saying, no, 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 we want to be informed by his word. How should the church be? We should be a praying church that prays for all people, no matter who it is. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We know who the enemy is. And the enemy is quite content to let the world burn. And so the question for us today is, are you? Are you content to let the world burn and sit idly by and not pray for the souls of many? Church, the posture of our heart towards these individuals needs to be one of repentance, not punishment. We want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, not be punished for their sins. 
And there is a lot of rhetoric going on out there with telling us how we are to act. One that I hear often is, we shouldn't bow down to culture. You're going to have to explain what that means before I can agree with that. What does it mean that we don't bow down to culture? If that means that, as Pastor Jeff has been committing us to do, we don't take our cues from culture. We're informed by the word of God. that We stand firm in our faith and what God has called us to be, then absolutely, we shouldn't bow down to culture. But if you mean we shouldn't be that... Uh, bad on the culture means that we are bigoted, hating, quick to point the finger, then by all means, that is not what we are called to do. We're called to speak the truth in love. And so if we are called to not bow down the culture, we're also called to bow for culture in that hitting our knees for their sake to intercede for the people that have no idea the glories of God because they're blinded in sin. That's what we're called to do, church. And it's not easy. It is not easy to pray for individuals that are perhaps our enemies. I mean, think about the Jews in Germany or the Israelites in the first century or us driving down 190. Right? Yeah. My first response when someone cuts me off on 190 or does the oh-so-famous pull out at the last minute and go 25 miles per hour as I slam on my brakes, that is not my first reaction. Let me pray for this person's salvation. My first response is finally inventing the tire gun. What is that? Thank you for asking. It is an invention that is, well, okay, any Star Wars fans in here? Thank you very much. Great. Okay, the original three, which is all that matters. In Empire Strikes Back, the T-47 uh, speeder in Hoth, right, that has the cable, attaches to the Imperial Walker, wraps around it, Imperial Walker falls. See what I'm getting with? Also, it is informed by Batman, Michael Keaton version, also only one that matters, where in the Batmobile, the gun pops up and it fires the rounds. It will pop up from your hood or, if you prefer, from your headlight. <laughs> yeah. And it will shoot a caliber out that will impale the tire, causing a flat, and on the other end, pops out a flag that says, you've just been tire gunned. <laughs> and, and you proceed to drive by while saying, you know why. And then you continue. Like, that's my first response. It is not to pray for the salvation of these people. And, and as funny as that is, like, that's what I want to do. But God's called us to pray, and to be inclined of people's souls. And this is not new. This is not new. We see this in Jeremiah, when the people have been captured from their country in Jerusalem, and they have been abducted to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 to the people. And the people could probably have a, maybe he's going to say, just hold tight, just relax for a second. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. But that's not what he says. In chapter 29, he says, build houses, plant gardens, take wives and have children. He basically says, pitch a tent and chillax. You're going to be here for a minute. And then he says this crazy thing in verse 7. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And get this, church. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. What? You want me to pray for the, the dude that jacked us out of our town and sent us over here? Absolutely not. No, absolutely yes. Because what the Israelites didn't see was that Jeremiah's words to them was not a way to make good of a bad situation. What Jeremiah was doing here, and, and God was leading the people to do, was through Israelites' exile, God was expanding Israel's reach and the inclusion of the gospel to all people. 
He was beginning to implement visions and scenes of this, how God would spread and use his people to go out and, and increase his kingdom. You need to see that. Because listen, believe it or not, God has chosen our authority. People aren't in office just by happenstance, although sometimes we feel that way. I'm from Florida. We know about recount. But he has chosen, God has ordained authority for a purpose. We see that in Romans 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant to or for your good. And Paul is acutely aware of this. In Acts 19, when riots erupt, it is the authorities that quench those riots, which enables Paul to gather the people again and preach the gospel and to disciple others. He knows that when he was on trial, being able to claim his Roman citizenship spared his life in getting to a higher um, judge to hear his case. So he is acutely aware of the benefit that God has placed in authorities, and we need to see this as well. And we see this as its plea for praying for kings in high positions that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. And Paul's not getting that, hey, if you pray for these kings and people in authority in the land that you live in, you'll have a peaceful and quiet life. That doesn't mean it's going to be all peachy king, okay? We know that we're called to suffer. Romans 8, Romans 5, Hebrews, it says it all over. We know we're called to suffer. It's not just assumed, it's promised. But what it means is that in having... Praying for the welfare of the state means that you have a better opportunity to spread the gospel uninhibited by the authorities. So the gospel might go forth unhindered. Church, we are called to pray that they would come to a knowledge. We're, we're called to pray for our authorities that we might be able to continue to go as we have been. I mean, think about where we live in right now. You don't fear coming into this room that you're going to be killed. We're able to gather, but there are brothers and sisters around the world who have to do it in secret, David Platt, right? Secret church, they have to do it in secret lest they be imprisoned or killed. And we can come in here all nonchalant like it's nothing. And so don't let us be a, a people that experience freedoms and still sit idly by doing nothing. Let us be a church that prays earnestly for God's work to be done. But it doesn't just say to pray, church. It says we are to live godly and dignified lives. Our behavior reflects our Savior. Our behavior reflects our hope. And we see this in the second portion of 2B. And, and listen to what 1 Peter chapter 2 reflects on this same topic and how we live our lives and what an example it shows in the midst of being under authority. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Dropping down, it says, For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It shows here that by living in the realities of the gospel's effect on you, you don't make the gospel call a hindrance because you're not living contrary to it. There's so many people that come in here and say, like, oh, I'm a Christian, and their lifestyle doesn't reflect it. It becomes a hindrance. Like, you're a Christian? I see how you live your life. 
Or if, if all the government is hearing from us or all the world is hearing from us is hatred and animosity that doesn't give them any reason to help us out or anything like that. So we need to be aware of this church. We need to live in such a way that our lives reflect the reality of the gospel because the difficulties that the church is facing is as much a result of our abdication of our responsibility than the cultural rhetoric. The church not being the church is as much hindrance to the gospel's advancement and proclamation as is the temptations we face or the cultural trend. We are as much of a problem. And so we need to correct. We need to see what God has to say to us so that we can be formed and live that way. Are we being the church? Are we praying? Are we living our lives that reflect this reality? Look, we have to be who God's called us to be. And we have to live who the Holy Spirit has empowered us to be. Or have we forgotten that we're citizens of heaven? Do you guys realize that we are citizens of heaven? Like, like some of us need to check our zip code. Like we are citizens of heaven. And, and not even dual citizenship with heaven and America. Like we're an expat here. Okay? Like we are ambassadors sent from the, the divine embassy of God for his mission on this earth. That's why we're here. So let's not be worried about putting up roots here and whatever zip code we rep in. I, when, I, when, I, when I was in high school, I was a part of a dance crew. <laughs> They're so quick to laugh. <laughs> and they should. <laughs> That was a part of a dance crew, and it was really cool because we had a representation from New York, the 212. We obviously had 407 being from Orlando. We had a cat from Puerto Rico. And I, having a desire to be here, was repping the 504. Hey. <laughs> but it's so interesting to see that. And, and, you know, going into my senior year, I think, the, the movie came out, Stomp the Yard, which is a dance film. And in that, they, they gather people in a circle, and the people from each city come and rep their dance that came out of that city, Right? And so they're just repping it, you know, 504, whatever. And so, yeah, we don't need to rep any kind of zip code here but Christ. That's my point, okay? <laughs> Embarrassing notion about dance crew. We need to represent our heavenly citizenship, not being, not being aware of whether we're rocking this zip code or not. We are citizens of heaven. You are an ambassador of the Most High God. And we need to live in that reality. And church, listen, I say this with love. America is not our home. And America is not our hope either. It is not. Don't get me wrong. I am exceedingly grateful for the grace that we experience being Americans. I am. And I am exceedingly grateful for the men and women who serve us, serve our country, past and present. I'm grateful for them. My grandfather served in the Air Force for 20 years as a navigator on the B-52 bomber. He flew almost 200 air raids over Vietnam. I mean, my favorite movie is The Patriot by Mel Gibson. I'm all about repping this country. As a matter of fact, I was uh, about to sign papers to join the, the Army for six years pursuing the Ranger program. So my mom found out. <laughs> she, she literally walked in and said, I quote, If you don't rip up those papers, I will kill you long before your boots hit the ground. <laughs> so that ended my stint in the military. <laughs> But I am, I am all about the grace of this country and the men and women who serve our country. But the problem is there are too many people that hold this country in such a high regard and people that hold power in such a high regard. I've heard my own family members and friends be like, oh, 
If this dude just gets get in office, it's going to be amazing. Or do you see how much he did for our country? God really used him. Yeah. He used Pharaoh too. And Mussolini, and Lenin, and Stalin, and Hitler, and Nero, who's reigning during this time of our text. You see my point? The emphasis needs to be on the user, not the used. God is in control. He ordains it for his purpose. And we need to be aware of that. We do not hold people in high esteem when they should not be. Our hope is not in men, but it is in God. This country is not our home. You say, well, yeah, but these certain inalienable rights allow us to live in such a way where the gospel can be proclaimed freely. Absolutely. And it should. But church, in countries like Syria and Iran and China, the church is booming under oppression. And we have the opportunity to spread the gospel like no one's business, and we're sitting down. Something's wrong with that. And that's in me. That's in me. That is so in me first. Church, okay. I need to, I need to calm down. <laughs> Look, if, if we're proud to be Americans, we need to be utterly amazed that we're Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to know. Because listen, church, here's the amazing thing about it. Understanding, our understanding of our standing before God as citizens of God and fellow heirs of Christ radically changes our lives and our mentalities. So much so that we, we don't create or, or treat our commission from God to pray and to preach the gospel as Buddy the Elf does with that jack-in-the-box. You know what I mean? Like he gets a sign, sorry, you just got to check the toys. Like he freaks out, right? Like we don't want to treat our commission like that. We want to treat it as the greatest honor of our life, that we can be partakers in the mission of God. And that's what we need to do. Church, my prayer for us is that we would reflect what is said in Hebrews 10.34. That's the church I want to be a part of. When it says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew yourselves that you had a better possession and an abiding one. That's why. You can take my stuff if you want. Liberties have added. I am a citizen of heaven. What can you take from me? Live in that. Take it, church. He has called us to shine the light, not wave a flag. And I would much rather be inclined to rep in this, by the stripes we are healed than the stars and stripes of our flag. You feel me? So what is, what is the ground of our charge? Our charge is to pray for all people and to live in a way that reflects the glories of the gospel. What is the ground? The ground of our charge is God himself, who he is and what he has done. Because the first century church faced a lot of distortions to the truth. Namely, taking the exclusivism of God and changing it to the bad exclusivism as there's only a select few. Definitely no Gentiles, not even some of you Jews. Just us elite. But what God says in his exclusivism is, no, there's only one God, which informs our miss missiology. There's only one God. There's not other gods, there's no plurality, there's only one God. So we pray that all people come to the knowledge of the truth of this one God. And it's also stated here in our inclusive mission. If there is only one God, there's only one way to be saved. And Paul stresses this in verse 7 when he says, This is why I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Because the mission is not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all people to hear this reality. It's what he's called us to do. 
But, but listen, we, we need to be careful. This statement about desiring to have all people come to the knowledge of the truth, it's not, this is not a statement of universalism. Because although God desires that all would come to knowledge of the truth, he hasn't willed it to be so. He has not. We see this all over the Bible from him choosing Abraham, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, Solomon over Absalom. And we see it in texts like Romans 9, when it speaks of Rebekah having Jacob and Esau. And he says, Though they were not yet born or had done nothing either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, he said, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Or in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Or in Romans 8, those who he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. God calls, and he calls a specific person based upon his divine plan, his sovereign plan. So it is seen in, in God, but it is also seen in Christ uniquely. Here in the, the theocratic society in which they, they lived, you see the offices of prophet, priest, and king where the prophet would mediate God's word to the people. The priests would mediate the, the appeasement of God's wrath for the sins of the people, and the king would mediate God's rule and reign. Christ came, the perfect, final, infinite holder of these offices, and he mediates it perfectly for us. And so we see that not only is there one God, but there's only one way to him, and that is through the person and work of Christ Jesus. And Christ as our mediator, meaning the only way to God, is a truth meant for missiology, not as a weapon for accusation. Because what I hear in the evangelical circles is, oh man, them Catholics, always praying to them saints and Mary. Don't you know there's only one way? Or why are these people always facing the east five times a day? Don't you know that he's near and you can pray to him whenever? Or if I hear or see one more thing about the LGBTQ plus, whatever it is, I'm going to be so upset. Church, it, th this is designed for a mission, not for causing accusation towards people. Church, Christ's mediation should create in us compassion, not condemnation towards people. Or have you forgot that we were called to image Christ? I think, I think it, it, it's important to remember what he's done for us. To help inform how we're to live to people that we don't agree with. Just in typical mediation, when the offenses mount up against us, Christ stands up on our behalf and clears, declares the debt being paid. And when the opposition demands proof, he stands up revealing his nail-scarred hands and says, would you like to see my side too? That has been paid. We are the most blessed people, the richest people in all the earth. Why would we want to seek condemnation on others? Would we not, our first response, want to be, I want you to come and experience all the glories and riches in Christ Jesus? There's no enemies in this, church. 
And, and he exemplifies this perfectly. Church, when he was being nailed to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Luke 23, he prayed for his murderers. I think we can pray for our neighbors. I think so. And, and church, it's not, it's, it's not important that we know who God has called to come into a saving knowledge of him. It's important that we, we, we do what we're called to do, which is pray for all people. That we would have a heart that he has, that, that he desires all people to hear the gospel call. That they would come into a saving knowledge of him. And, and John Piper rightly uh, addresses this issue when he says, Our job is not to know ahead of time whose Christ's sheep are. Our job is to preach the unreachable riches, pray for converting power, and plead for people to repent and trust in Christ. That is our mission on earth. That should be our, as Paul says in our text, the primary thing that we're about. We go and we pray for people. We want people to hear the truth of the gospel and come to a saving knowledge of him. That's what we should desire. That is our aim as the body of Christ, or at least it should be. What's our aim? What is our aim here? We see it in the second part of verse 2 through 4. This is where I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning as far as what is the aim now going forward. So we've heard this stuff, so what? But what does it mean for us? This is what I believe God wants to do. Three things. Number one, that we might live in such a way that the proclamation of the gospel may not be hindered whether by the infringement of oppression of governing authorities or by a poor reflection in us. We don't want to live in such a way where eventually it comes where the governing authorities harp down on us or even more prominent that we live in such a way where we do the glories of God a disservice because we reflect them poorly. We don't do what we're called to do. Number two, that our exilic commission, the, the mandate that God has given us through our period as exiles here on earth, would continue to expand the boundary of God's kingdom, causing many more to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Church, prayer has impact. God has ordained by his goodness to us that although he has ordained all things before time, he has allowed us to be partakers of that so that he responds to our prayers in time for the sake of others. My brother, for the past six years, has been living a homosexual lifestyle. He has fallen away from the faith. He has desired nothing to do with God or anyone else for that matter that preaches about God. So what do we do? Lose heart? Get angry at him? Yell at him about the truth? No, we simply prayed. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. Guess what? God answered that prayer. He has rejected the homosexual lifestyle. He has pursued God. He is reading book after book and Bible passage after Bible passage. He has distanced himself from those friends. He has cut off all inappropriate contact on his phone or computer. And he wants to know more. How can that happen? God only God. So should we not seek to plead before the throne of the one who's able to do this for our neighbors and our governing authorities 
and our friends and our family. Church, our our third and final aim is that God would be glorified. That the prayers of the saints, the personification of the gospel in us, and the salvation of his chosen would be glorifying to him. That would be pleasing to him. We want to glorify God with our lives by doing what God has called us to do and to be. So this is, this is what I want to do this morning, church. I don't want to just talk about it. I want to do it. And so I just want all of us just to stand up right now, and I'm just going to pray for all people. For dictators and presidents, local, federal, people down your street. We're going to pray for them. And then Mark is going to lead us in a song. You join me in prayer. Lord, the only difference between us and all those other people is you and what you have done. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God, being rich in love, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It is all because of you. And Lord, we want to honor your mandate to us, Lord God. We want to live as we are exiles here on the earth, Lord God, we want to live in such a way that we pray earnestly for those who do not know you. Lord God, that you would bring many to a saving knowledge of your truth. That our government, Lord God, will remember that you are the God of the universe. You reign. You rule. No one holds a position without you allowing it. No one does anything without your approval. Lord, we pray for our neighbors that we pass daily and say nothing about your truth. And we pray for our family members who it seemingly is the most difficult to speak to. Lord, would we be willing to cause rifts in the relationship for the sake of restoration with you? God, we pray for all people, for Buddhists and Muslims and Jewish people, Lord God, and Hindus and all the different religions that are represented, Lord God, and all those who currently claim as enemies to Christianity, we pray, Lord God, that you reveal your truth to them. Lord God, as our emblem shows here at Christ Community Church, that we would be a light, a lantern set ablaze to our surrounding communities, that they would see the glorious riches of the gospel at work in and through his people. That's what we want. God, would you do this for your glory and our good?